invite you to take your Bibles. We're going to be looking at Romans chapter 8 this morning, verses 1 through 4. As we do begin this series uh, on the, what I consider to be the greatest chapter in the Bible, Romans chapter 8. And I'm going to share some reasons why I think that's true. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. I'd like to read those, and then we're going to dive into our study this morning. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled, fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you this morning for the beauty that is around us and just the reminder as we drive in, as we see the snow of a God who is the one who created the whole concept of art and beauty for us to enjoy. Lord, we now climb into this, this mountaintop chapter, and Lord, I pray that you would teach us, expand our vision of you, expand our vision of your plan, your purpose for our lives, um, and most of all, Lord, may we better understand what it means that God is for us. So teach us today, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to start off this series simply by presenting six reasons that I believe Romans 8 is the greatest chapter in the Bible, and I'm going to do it by saying it is the greatest portrayal of, and then I'll give you six things. It is the greatest portrayal of, first of all, the extent and depth of God's love for His children. It is foundational to everything that is in this chapter. It's going to be presented, built out, just a powerful visual of the love of God. Secondly, it is a powerful portrayal of the brokenness of the physical universe, how it got that way, and what it will one day become. The whole cosmos is involved in Romans chapter 8, particularly in uh, our planet, but God's design, what's happened, how it got the way it is, and what the future holds. Number three, greatest portrayal that life is not random and purposeless for God's children, but filled with hope and design. Number four, there, it is the greatest portrayal of the communion that we have with all three members of the Godhead. Uh, this really is a beautiful part of that, and, and in the prayer that, it, that, that is a part of the common life that we looked at, the idea of, of speaking to all three members of the Godhead um, and the relationship that we can have with each one of them is presented in this chapter. Number five, of the unbreakable links of our salvation that began in eternity past and are culminating in eternity future. And then number six, it is the greatest portrayal of the Christian life being by the power of the Holy Spirit, not by our own efforts. We saw, we're, we're going to see that today, and this really is the focus of this series, uh, uh, life by the Spirit. Uh, that is what Romans 8 is all about. Okay, when we left Paul at the end of chapter 7, we left him in the midst of inner turmoil. 
is summarized in Romans chapter 7, verse 22 to 25. And I'd just like to read this. This is where we left Paul. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. At the end of Romans 7, Paul is culminating this internal struggle that he's been having. He says, look, I am, I am a Christian. I have embraced Jesus Christ as my Savior. I have made him the Lord of my life, but I'm still living life not how I think it's supposed to be lived. I'm struggling. And he says, on the one hand, there are things that I, I know I should do, but what I want to do, I don't do. And he says, there are things I know I shouldn't be doing, but the things I don't want to do, those I do. That's an actual quote of verses 12 and 13. And then he says here, I'm a wretch. I mean, I'm a mess. I'm not able to live the way I think I should be able to live, and I think I'm supposed to live, and yet Jesus is my Savior. And Romans chapter 7 is the portrayal of the Christian life lived by someone in their own strength. It is the flesh life of a Christian trying to live on their own resources. Romans chapter 8 introduces us to the portrayal of the Christian life in the power of the Holy Spirit. And Paul transitions from the end of verse 25 where he's saying, I'm a wretched man in verse 24. And then he says, wait, thanks be to God, there's no way I can live this life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And now he's transitioning into chapter 8 into this newness of life by the power of the Spirit. Romans 8 Verses 1 through 4 presents two life-giving realities that are provided to us by the Holy Spirit. He is the great liberator. First of all, we are free from condemnation. And secondly, we are free from control. That these two realities are available through the Holy Spirit. And so I'd like to unpack those this morning. We'll spend more time in the first one. You are free from condemnation in Christ, in this relationship with Christ. He says there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus in verse 1. The word condemnation is actually from a compound word in the original, two words that make up one word. It's kata krina. Kata means uh, against, and krina means judgment. It is judgment against. It's a verdict against you is what he's saying. He says, there's no more verdicts. There's no more verdicts against you. There's no more, no more voices that can speak against you, that can, that can declare judgment upon you. Now, this is a profoundly practical statement because there is maybe nothing that is so universally experienced in all human experience than the fact that all of us hear the voices of, of condemnation. All of us have the verdicts. And we hear, when I, Chris, when I say voices, I don't mean literal voices, but they're our own voices or the messages that we interpret, that we all feel the verdicts. We, we see it all the time in our lives. 
We feel that we're not enough. We feel that, uh, that I'm on the wrong side of the mathematical thing and I want to be a greater than, but I keep finding myself, I'm, I'm a less than in my office and in, in comparison with other grandparents, uh, with their grandkids, in comparison with, with other girls and, and, and their ability to track guys or whatever it is that there is, that I'm, I'm getting the wrong verdict. The verdict is I'm, an, I'm, on the, I'm the short stick end of life. We feel those verdicts all the time. We, we, we live our life with them. Every time that a, a woman wears a, a, a new outfit that she once loved, but it took one time that someone, when she was wearing it, a, 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 a friend said to her, have you gained weight? She never wants to wear that again. Why? She's heard the verdict. We get it. We, I mean, we all experience it. It's the verdict that we hear from others, but perhaps the verdict we hear comes most of all from ourselves. The verdict that speaks to us. The verdict that we're less than. The verdict that we don't measure up. The verdict that we don't have enough. That we, can't, that we are not sufficient. Where did the verdicts come from? Why do we have these verdicts? Are, is it just being human? It's not. Because in the Garden of Eden... When Adam and Eve were first created and they were doing life there, they didn't hear verdicts. Adam wasn't walking around saying, oh my goodness, this is a, look at this vegetable garden I was supposed, this is a disaster, I'm a terrible gardener. Eve didn't wake up and say, oh, another bad hair day, I just, I just hate my hair. She wasn't hearing verdicts. He wasn't hearing verdicts. Why? Because they were living in an environment and they were bringing to that environment the capacity to live in total enjoyment of embracing the experience with joy. So what happened? What happened is sin. Genesis chapter 3 describes the entrance of sin into humanity where immediately dramatic change took place in people's lives. Immediately, there's blame shifting. All of a sudden, they're feeling condemned and the, and the verdict. So Eve says, well, ha, it's not my fault. The, the, the snake gave, the serpent gave me the fruit. And, and Adam's saying, it's not my fault. I mean, the woman you gave me gave it to me. But we see it even more in the fact that for the first time, they're hiding from each other. It says that they felt shame and they put on garments and, and, and which were fig leaves and they're hiding from God. They're hiding from each other. What happened? For the first time, they felt shame. They felt embarrassment. They felt inadequate. They felt unworthy. They felt unacceptable. They heard the verdicts. The verdicts came because of sin. Because for the first time in human experience, we didn't measure up. We were unworthy before the eyes of, of, of God's standard of righteousness. But this listening and hearing the voices of verdicts extends to every part of every one of our lives. It speaks into all kinds of life experiences and there is nobody that is strong enough, independent enough to be immune to the voices. 
If ever there was a guy that would be immune to the voices of the verdicts of condemnation, it would be a guy that was one of the most bombastic generals, uh, brilliant strategist, maybe the most brilliant in World War II, certainly one of the most, um, didn't care about people's opinion, totally did his own thing, General George Patton. General George Patton, uh, fearless, bombastic, uh, courageous on the battlefield, doing things people wouldn't have dared to do and yet was successful. Swept up from Italy with his forces the, in charge of the Allies up to Sicily, took Sicily, went up through Italy, and had for the first time in the war the Germans on the run. The Nazi regime was backing away because of Patton, and everybody knew that now when the giant enterprise took place of the Allies going to, onto the mainland through France to go to surge towards Germany, that there was one guy that was going to be in charge of the attack, and his name would be General George Patton. Except that wasn't what happened. Because in a secret conversation that Dwight D. Eisenhower, who was the commanding general of the Allied forces with George Patton, he told him, George, we're going to completely confuse and surprise the Germans. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to create a fake army. We're going to do it here in England. And we're going to create this fake army. And we're going to put you in charge of it. The army is actually going to be made of thousands of British citizens who are going to dress up in GI uniforms. We're going to make inflatable tanks. We're going to make fake cannons. We're going to build fake airplanes and all those things from the sky and reconnaissance vision of the uh, 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 Luftwaffe, the German airline, they'll look down and they will be confused into thinking this is a giant army that is preparing for an assault on the mainland of France. And we're going to give out information throughout the spy network. We know that here is in England for the Nazis that you're going to lead the invasion and we're going to actually have you. You're going to be at the camp. You're going to be there. They're going to see you there. And we're going to give the information that we're going to Calais, a, a France port. But actually, we're going west of there. We're going to attack a place called Normandy Beach. And in this interview, he laid out the whole thing. And Patton was overwhelmed to the point that he got extremely emotional. And this man who would seemingly not be would not take anything that would be, uh, that he would be unworthy, pled with Patton, pled, pled with Eisenhower, and said, George, George, I'm a warrior. I'm a fighter. I can't lead a fake army. I've got to lead the assault. I'm the best guy you have. I need to do What was happening? This was a man that heard the verdict, you're not going to be the guy. You're not going to be enough. You're going to be a less than in this enterprise, this historic invasion. You're not going to lead. You're not going to be what you feel you have to be. Everybody hears the verdicts. Everybody hears the voices of not being enough. And what the devil does, he amplifies the voices. Usually he doesn't come and tell us things we haven't already been hearing. He's a megaphone to them. And he does that about our sin. He, does it, he has two roles. He's the tempter. He tempts us into sin. And he says, 
it isn't that much. What he does is basically make too little of sin. He said, it's not that big a deal. I mean, who's going to know? I mean, who's it going to hurt anyway? It's just you. I mean, you're the only one. It's not going to be a big deal. He makes too little of sin. And then you give in to temptation. And immediately what he does is he takes that hat off. He takes the tempter hat on, off and he puts on the accuser hat. And he comes over and he makes too much of sin. And he says, you call yourself a Christian? And you do that? You call yourself a father and you talk to your kids that way? You call yourself a, 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 a husband that loves the Lord and you treat your wife? I mean, what he does is amplify the verdicts that already we begin to feel in ourselves. Everybody hears the verdicts that I'm not enough, that I'm not what I should be, that I don't ever get it right. And the devil amplifies those voices in our lives. One other example Many of you have heard the story of Les Mis, watched the movie, gone to the play, read the book. The story is told of two characters, Jean Valjean, the, the main character, and the protagonist, a guy named Inspector Javert. Javert is the guy that uh, was totally a moralist, totally got it right, always acted according to his own, in his mind, high moral code, never lied, never stole, uh, always did religious things that he felt were important to do, very, in his mind, devout guy, and had a very clear moral standard. And at the bottom rung of moral standards for hens were criminals. And here was this guy named Jean Valjean that he's been pursuing for 20 years after he, he got away from prison, and he is pursuing him and eventually comes to a place when Jean Valjean actually, at risk to his own life, saves the life of Javert. And he is confronted with this very emotionally, spiritually confusing, conflicting moment. Because everything he has believed about this man's character and unchangeableness of his character is thrown into question. And in the same moment, what is also thrown into question is himself. His own capacity to get it right. His own, his own capacity. Maybe, maybe the way I've looked at myself isn't true. Maybe, maybe, maybe. And he's confronted with the decision, what will he do with this data? Because the verdict is beginning to come. Javert, you too are a sinner. You too get things wrong. You too are, are blemished and, and marred. And he comes to this conclusion. He said, I would rather die than see myself the same as a common criminal. And so he does. He literally jumps off the bridge into the river and dies. He couldn't handle the verdict. We hear the verdicts every day, all the time. And it can be about moralism, I have to get it right. It can be about performance, I have to be better than others. My family has to be better than others. My grades have to be better than others. It can be, I have to be more popular, more likable, more winsome, more fun. Sin causes us all to seek a verdict of acceptability. But what Paul is saying is, there is another way that you can live your life. And that is to live under the verdict that you have in Christ. And he says, in Christ, there is no condemnation. 
There is no verdict that is constantly saying, you're not enough, you're less than, you'll never measure up, you're this, you're that. He says there is a totally contrary message, and it is the message he's constantly saying in the book of Romans. He declared it in chapter 5, verse 1, when he says this, he said it positively. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. To be justified is to be declared righteous or literally to be declared acceptable to God. That we do it on the basis of what Jesus did for us. He died the death we should have died. He lived the life that we should have lived. That his righteousness, his record, his his report card could be laid to our account. And he says, you can be accepted on the basis of what he is. Fully accepted. You're declared righteous. You're declared acceptable. In Romans 8, he says the same thing, only he says that on the negative way. He says, therefore, there is now no condemnation to those in Christ. And he even goes on in verse 33 to say it this way. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who declared you righteous. You don't have to hear that. You don't have to hear the voices. You don't have to hear the verdict. There is a new verdict. You are justified. You are righteous. You are acceptable. You've made the grade. You are worthy. And it involves two things. Certainly, it involves forgiveness. You are forgiven for all the things you've done and all the things you will do. There is absolute forgiveness. Now, there is a longing of forgiveness for people. There's a sense of guilt everyone has. Remember reading this story by Ernest Hemingway. It's called The Capital of the World. It's a story uh, that it's placed in, in Lisbon. And in the story, there's this young guy named Paco. And Paco is a guy that um, works as a server in sort of a seedy restaurant. It's a restaurant where a lot of uh, former and failed matadors hang out, and he wants to be a matador some way, someday. And as they're there in the arena, uh, there in the restaurant, um, he is uh, being focused on by Hemingway. And Hemingway sort of takes a side explanation about the word Paco. He said he's called Paco. And of course, Paco uh, is, is reminiscent of the proverb that is throughout the, the city. And the proverb was this. It tells the story of a of a father that reached out to his boy and left a newspaper advertisement. And the newspaper advertisement said this, Paco, meet at Hotel Montana on noon on Tuesday. All is forgiven, Papa. And in the proverb, Hemingway says that was there in Lisbon, 800 young men named Paco showed up. And he uses it to say, people long for forgiveness. They long for reconciliation for what they've done wrong. And God is saying through Paul, he says, first of all, what you have when it says there's no condemnation is you are forgiven, but it means more than that. It also means you're accepted. We long for the verdict of acceptability or worthiness. The one whose opinion matters, the one who created you to live with him at the center of your life, the one whom everyone is ultimately sensing they live before he declares you acceptable. A few years ago, I was working out on our property down towards the road. One of our big limbs had come down off a tree, and I was out there with my youngest son, and I was wearing a pair of bright red sweatpants, and they had sort of a shine to them, and I actually haven't worn them in a while, but, um, <laughs> which you'll understand why. But I... I uh, 
We were working on this, and a car came by on our road, and it's a pretty busy road, and it stopped. And a couple of young guys in the car, I don't know who they were, and they yelled out, nice red pants. <laughs> they even then said, you look dumb in those red pants. <laughs> if you did this, you need to tell me. But they, so then they drove away. And my son was beside, he was just incensed. He says, oh, we need to call the police. Who, who do they think they are? And I, I didn't really enjoy the experience, but it didn't affect me that much. I didn't know who they were. I mean, basically they were saying, you're dumb. I mean, who, who would wear pants like that in public? And, but, but it didn't completely eat me up. On the other hand, if a car had come by and I was sitting there and working there and, and all of a sudden I hear yelled out the window, you look dumb in those red pants and you are dumb for wearing them. And, and, and I looked and I saw, wait, that's my wife, Marion. I said, why are, you, why are you doing this in front of all the neighbors? You bought me these pants. Well, whatever. It would matter more to me. You see, it isn't so much the verdict that we get as it is who makes the verdict. You see, the more important they are in your life, the more they know about you, the more impactful is the verdict. What Paul is saying is the one that knows the most about you. He knows everything. He knows every layer of your life. He knows every thought, word, and deed, the, the thoughts that you've had that you would never tell anybody you've ever had. God knows it. He is the one making the verdict that you are accepted, that you are worthy, that you have made the grade. Now, you may be out there and you may be saying, honestly, Mark, that is beautiful. I love the thought that I'm declared righteous, that I'm declared acceptable and, and worthy to God. And yeah, that's a beautiful thing. But quite honestly, uh, I, still, I still want to be liked by people. I still want to feel capable. I want to make a difference. I, I still want to reach some goals and be admired. This is what I would say. I think God in his mercy does allow us to do that. I think he does allow us to get some encouragement in, in you know, doing some things and maybe working hard at the gym, losing a few pounds, feeling satisfied. I mean, sure, there are things that, that we feel good about. But I think what God is saying is, if you're thinking that you are going to be able to resolve the, the, the power of the verdicts by just getting some measure of success, you're going to find that no matter how you climb up the ladder, far you get up, somebody's on your fingers stepping on them above you. It's never going to remove the power of the verdict except one thing. Letting the person that knows you most declare that you are utterly accepted by him. And I think what he's saying is even those other verdicts will become quieter. They'll become less dominating. The person in my life 
that I absolutely have no question loves me more, that I am more aware of, of her love than anybody else's, is my wife, Marion. I feel a verdict from her of acceptability and value and love I have never felt anywhere else. And the main reason is this. She knows my ugly more than anyone else. She's been the recipient of my ugly. She's been the recipient of my unkindness. And yet, she's still here. And she is still for me. And she still believes in me. There is a sense in which her verdict is more powerful than anyone else's. And the guy driving by, yeah, I don't love her. I wouldn't want to have that every time I was out working in my yard. But I don't really care overly much. I have other verdicts that are louder to me in my life. God's verdict needs to be the loudest verdict in our life. Not am I, you know, how am I doing here and how am I accomplishing this? And it's what will enable us when we can't do the job that brings so much satisfaction to us. And all of a sudden we get a medical report and we can't do the job. Or all of a sudden there are other things. All of a sudden the husband walks out and you're, you're struck with the verdict. You're unlovely. No one will ever love you. You need a louder verdict. But there is a louder verdict. It's the verdict from the one that knows you better than anyone else does. The one that sees your darkness and your ugly in a way that nobody else has. And he says to you, you need to operate on this principle of life. You are more evil, self-centered, and corrupt than you ever dared believe. But you are more accepted valued and loved than you ever dared hope. And the more that you are aware of the one and still real, and realize that there's still love, still acceptance, still valuing you coming, the more you are stunned with the greatness of the one that is for you, that loves you, it's the verdict that will matter because it's the verdict that knows you. It's the verdict that sees everything about you and says, you are more valued, you are more accepted, you are more cherished, you are more loved than you would ever dare hope. Paul says, there's no condemnation in Christ. If you're in Christ, you can hear a verdict that muzzles the other verdicts that you hear every single day, that you struggle with every single day. It is the verdict that ultimately frees us from the tyranny of those voices. The other thing he says, and I'm going to move fast. And, and I would, quite frankly, would say, Inspector Javert pridefully refused to accept the first part of himself so that he never really valued the second part. You don't value that your love cherished and accepted as much if you think you've got it all together. But when you see yourself, when you see your brokenness, and you realize God says, man, I'm for you. You don't have to be successful. You don't have to have a working marriage. You don't have to have your children love you. You don't have to have anything else. All those things in your life that you think are measuring who you are, what you are, they're not how I measure you. You're accepted, valued, worthy, loved as my child. Enough that I pursued you, that I went after you, that I got you because I wanted 
you. The other part is you're free from control in Christ. Verses 2 through 4, he talks about this. The Spirit sets you free from the power of sin and death. In verse 2, he says this, Because through Christ the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. The word law here is actually carrying the idea of, of a, a, a power or an authority. And he says the authority of Jesus Christ, uh, the authority of the Spirit that gives life sets you free from the power of sin and death. Now, in the context, here's what he's talking about. Paul has just said in chapter 7, you know, look, I'm a Christian, I'm trying to live this life, but I keep falling on my face and my life's a mess and there are these habits I can't conquer and what I want to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, I do. And, and then he says, what I learned was I don't have to be controlled by this stuff. I will be in my own strength. I will be in trying to live the Christian life dutifully in my own flesh. But the Spirit brings a power as I lean into him that I don't have in myself. And as we'll see, he changes our thinking. We're going to see that in verses 5 and following, where we now have the, the, the mind of the Spirit and, and not the mind, he says, of sin and death. And he says here in verse 3 and 4 an interesting thing. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. And then this, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who don't live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. This is not talking about what happened in verse 4 at the cross. He's saying, verse 3, this was actualized through what Jesus did. But he was saying, in day-to-day -day experience, you're going to find the capacity to live out the requirements of the law in your life through living, not by this flesh, but by the Spirit. So what does that mean? That you're going to be able to live out the righteous requirements of the law. I mean, does this mean that we're going to go back to the Old Testament law and what the Spirit's going to do is it's going to prompt me on the Sabbath day to never, never go a mile from my house or, or it's going to cause me to do all the Old Testament rituals. Is that what he means by the law is going to be fulfilled by the Spirit? Well, he tells us exactly what he means later in the book. Look at what he says in Romans chapter 13. For the commandments, these are the Ten Commandments, you shall com not commit adultery, not murder, not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Love is the focus. It is the fulfillment of God's commandments. He says we fulfill God's law in our lives as we live according to the Spirit. And what that means is what God does in our lives is make war on everything that is not love. Did you hear that? That's really important. He makes war on everything in our lives that is not love. That the focus of the Spirit is to make love flow through our lives. It's why Javert was so wrong. This self-righteous man that thought he had all, you know, he's dotting all the T's, uh, dotting, what do you do? Dotting all the I's, crossing all the T's. But he was loveless. 
He was self-absorbed. He was harsh. He was mean. He was proud. It wasn't the spirit. The poor guy, if he was a Christian, which is debatable, but if he was a Christian, he was trapped in Romans 7. He's still trying to get it right, trying to get it right, trying to get it right. So what's the alternative to living a life that is dominated by having to get it right? Is living a life that is dominated by the love of Christ. This is what Romans 8 is going to tell us. We will love when we are loved. When we are allowing the love of God to be the consuming reality of our lives, it is that which impels us to live differently. Romans 7 is saying, oh, here's the principles. I've got to live godly life. You know, God's holy, and therefore I've got to live holy. And yes, he's holy. He's called you to live holy. But it is not the holiness of God that is going to primarily create holiness in your life. It is the love of God that is going to primarily create holiness in your life. The more you know how much God loves you, the more you will live in the power of the Spirit, silencing the verdicts, and living a life to the glory of God. Romans 8 is going to constantly take us to the lesson that the two guys in, in, in the story, Les Mis, learned. The one guy, John Valjean, the convict, his poor situation over two decades in prison, he came out a hard, angry, arrogant man, violent man. Took his yellow card, which said that you, you had, every time you went to a town in France, once you got out of prison, you had to show him the yellow card. And every time he did it at the town hall, he'd be, he'd be unallowed to get a job. He went from town to town to town, finally came to a little town. They said, look, why don't you, why don't you go over to that house? It was the bishop's house, a godly man. So he went over there. The bishop invited him for dinner, knew who he was, let him stay for dinner. And... During the dinner, the, the convict who's mocking the, the spirituality of the bishop is eyeing their expensive silverware, silver silverware. I guess that makes sense that it's silver. Um, and tableware that was silver. <laughs> anyway, the, you try doing this three times. And the, <laughs> so that night, he gets up in the middle of the night, takes his bag and, and starts sconcing all the uh, silverware. And loads it up, and the bishop comes down. Sees the bishop, he's got to get away, so he cold cocks the, the bishop, knocks him out, takes off. Next morning, we're at the bishop's house. Jean Valjean is there, brought in by the, 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 guard, the soldiers. And the priest, bishop, looks at him and says, uh, I gave it to him. And then he goes and gets the silver candelabra and puts that in the bag. He said, why didn't you take this too? The soldiers leave, and, and he grabs him, and he just says, basically, Willie paraphrase, do you realize what I just did? I just loved you. I just graced you. I am re- I, 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 he says, I've, I've redeemed you. Now go live a different life. And if you've read the book, you know what is not seen in the movie or the, or the musical, that throughout the remainder of his life, Jean Valjean was a disciple of the, of the bishop and constantly met with him and was taught the grace of God to him It was God's grace. It was God's love. It was God's verdict that changed this angry, proud, sinful man into a man of love who served others. It is being loved by God. 
It is being graced by God that enables us to say, I'm listening to the wrong verdicts. Maybe I don't have a job. Maybe I don't have relationships. Maybe I don't have health. Maybe I can't do anything well, seemingly. I belong to God. God is for me. God who knows everything about me. God who knows how many thousands of times I've turned and gone my own selfish way. He constantly comes back after me and says, man, you are more loved and valued and accepted and cherished than you ever dared hope. Embrace that reality. Let God love you. I think that's what Romans 4 is, Romans 8 is going to keep telling us. Let God love you. He's the one that has freed us from condemnation. We're not on the line. He's the one that frees us from the power and the control that dominates our lives of self-absorbed habits. Let God love you. Lord, I ask that you would teach us from this. Every one of us needs to learn this better. Thank you, Lord, that you have pursued us. By your grace, you wanted us, that you have made us your own son or daughter. Lord, for those of us that have been captured by saving grace, teach us, Lord, how to live letting you love us. Lord, for hearts that may be here, people that have never personally embraced Jesus Christ as Savior God, how I pray that your Spirit would pursue them and draw them to the cross as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now go in peace to love and serve and enjoy the Lord.